Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks for joining me on the Enrealment Hour podcast. A few bits of information before I tell you about today's conversation. My newest book, Hugh Manifestations on Trauma, Truth, and Transformation, is now available on Amazon and various bookstores and libraries. In the words of one of my favorite authors, Mirabai Starr, quote, when Jeff Brown dares to speak truth about our spiritual lives, the curtain that's been covering the wizard comes tumbling down, and we recognize that it's just a dude with his fingers on the controls of our souls, and we are emboldened to take back our sovereignty and lament and praise with the whole of our authentic, broken, open hearts. This little book is a loose thread. Pull it. Close quote. (laughs) So please pull it. If it's not in your favorite bookstore or library, please ask them to order it in if you will. In addition, my next Writing Your Way Home course will begin at soulshapinginstitute.com on July 19th, 2023, for those who are interested. And I am getting activated on my Enrealment newsletter on Substack, which is a wonderful space for writers like me to express our ideas in longer form. Links in the show notes if you're interested. In the following dialogue, I speak with Dr. Judith Orloff about empathy and vulnerability. I had a real good time with her. Judith is the New York Times bestselling author of The Empath's Survival Guide, Life Strategies for Sensitive People. She's a psychiatrist, an empath, and is on the UCLA Psychiatric Clinical Faculty. She synthesizes the pearls of conventional medicine with cutting-edge knowledge of intuition, energy, and spirituality, and passionately believes in the power of integrating this wisdom for total wellness. Dr. Orloff has been called the godmother of the empath movement. She specializes in treating empaths and highly sensitive people in her private practice and workshops. More information at drjudithorloff.com. Lots of questions and answers spring forth from our conversation. Is there a distinction between healthy and unhealthy empathy? How does one balance their empathic tendencies with living in the world? At what point is vulnerability a healthy sign of life? And at what point is it something that actually works against you? And a question that I often asked, is empathy a blessing, a curse, or does it really depend on how you manage it and how you utilize it to enhance rather than detract from your lived experience? Before we go there, let's feel into a little bit of Trevor Hall's song, Arrows. Arrows to your heart. This journey's got me bleeding in a certain kind of feeling. But I can never leave it. Good God, I know I need it. Arrows come straight for my heart. Great. So happy to have you with me, Judith. Um, I really, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Me too. I picked up a copy of your book, The Empath's Survival Guide, Life Strategies for Sensitive People. I think it may already be my favorite Sounds True book uh, published. And what I, there are a lot of things I like about it, but one of the, I mean, apart from the fact that you are and historically a validator of empathy and of our capacity to feel, which I think is so much at the heart of that and our capacity to surrender and to experience reality vulnerably rather 
than as a in an armored state of being or something. Um, and I and I have always believed that I wrote my first book, Soul Shaping, that sensitivity is a sign of life. You know, and when we can't feel anything, or we're not really alive. Apart from my empathic tendencies, I am really primarily only interested in how I feel, not so much how I think. You know, I learned a long time ago that if I felt pretty good about my life, then felt good inside of my own bones, felt good in my relational fields, and felt good with my path and purpose, that nothing else really seemed to matter. That seemed to echo forward in all kinds of beautiful ways. And when I let go of that, it becomes so armored that I, which sometimes is, of course, necessary in this world, and can no longer really connect to myself as a feeling being, I'm very effective but I'm deeply dissatisfied. So I think putting the focus on the world of feeling is the really the only hope for the species. The question is how we do it in a way that's self-protective and necessarily armored at various times in this crazy survivalist world. I wanted to just talk, let me just read from page eight, where you sort of distinguish an empathic way of being from, you know, ordinary empathy, just as a starting point. So you say, uh, first, what is the difference between ordinary empathy and being an empath? Ordinary empathy means our heart goes out to another person when they're going through a difficult period. It also means that we can be happy for others during their times of joy. As an empath, however, we actually sense other people's emotions, energy, and physical symptoms in our bodies without the usual filters that most people have. We can experience other people's sorrow and also their joy. We are super sensitive to their tone of voice and bodies. We can hear what they don't say in words, but communicate non-verbally and through silence. Empaths feel things first, then think, which is the opposite of how most people function in our over-intellectualized society. There is no membrane that separates us from the world. This makes us very different from other people who have had their defenses up almost from the time they were born. Can you tell us a little bit about your empathic beginnings in this world and how that has somehow led to your finding this, what I call sacred purpose to bring this messaging to others. Yeah, my, my life. I've been an empath for as long as I can remember. And that goes back to the fetal development stage. And the reason I know that is that when my mother was pregnant with me, she had fibroid in her uterus, and there had to have surgery while I was in the womb. And so I experienced that feeling of being of, of the world. I haven't even seen Earth yet, and having the world impose on my safe little space here, you know, within my mother, and bang, 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 metal, you know, all kinds of things, you know, the world trying to get in. And that's my first impulse is, <laughs> you know, keep it out. You know, it's too, it's nice in here. I don't want to be, you know, overloaded by all those things. But I got the sense of the overload and how I would react to it in the womb. I have memories of that. So, and then the birth was difficult. You know, my mother had a pulmonary embolus when I was born. And so, I, you know, I, I grew, you know, I, the first few weeks, you know, I was in a plastic bassinet and I didn't have the hugging and the loving and, and they're all the world coming at me, you know, the nurses in the white uniforms and everybody was sterile back then. And, you know, it was just that, that was my beginning. So I'm not complaining at all. I'm just reporting 
that that was my beginning. And so perhaps my fetal experience predisposed me to be, you know, such an empath. I'm such an empath and I love it. You know, I, I wouldn't want it any other way. But I, I grew up sensitive. And, and as a little girl, you know, I had both my parents were doctors and I come from a lineage of 25 doctors. They're very good people, but they were always afraid something was going to happen to me, you know, or afraid for me. They were afraid people would think I was weird given my sensitivities and I would have strong intuitions and I would feel overwhelmed at the mall and not know why and ask my mother and she'd say, just get a thicker skin, dear, you know, just get a thicker skin. And, you know, you have to be like other people. We don't want them to think you're weird. That was the overall message I got growing up. And finally, they told me never mention any more of your your dreams or your intuitions or how you know you're feeling like this again. We don't want to hear it. You know, you you just keep saying these horrible things about my friends, you know, which wasn't always true. I did sometimes when I didn't trust them. <laughs> um, so I grew up you know, ashamed of my empathic abilities. And that that was just the beginning. But I just want to say to everybody who doesn't know me, and thank you for having me on, by the way. As a, you know, I've grown up to become a psychiatrist, which is very important to me because my, I, I really value my healing work with people, you know, very important to me. Um, and my empathy and my empath nature has helped me so much connect to people. And I love connection. Empathy and being an empath gives you connection. And connection is kind of what I'm looking for here. So I love connection. I love friends. I love, you know, my partner and I love my patients and, you know, the earth and the trees. Being an empath lets you connect to all of this. This is a huge gift. So you're not walled off. So you don't feel what's my purpose in life. And What's my day going to be like? It's just all filled with things to do, which, you know, is is true. But at the same time, you can connect. And that's a great gift. I want people to know that for those who are struggling being an empath, maybe feeling too much, maybe absorbing the energy and the stress of other people into your bodies, know which is what we do. And we have to learn skills. I wrote the Empath Survival Guide to offer people skills to cope with the challenges and enhance the the gifts. So you need both. You need both. And so now I personally, you know, I'm I, I love the analytic mind and I also love the empath. I love everything. So I switch back and forth and I use both and it's all great. You know, I just love love playing with it all and using it all. I feel like my mind is my ally as long as I don't listen to it at 3 a.m. with all the fears, you know, or the uh, anxieties. You don't want to listen to your mind for that, but it can offer, you know, some really strategic ways to deal with people. Your mind tell the way it works for me is that I listen to my intuition first and foremost. My what does my gut say? What does my heart say? What is my body telling me? What are my dreams telling me? about this person or this meeting or this business venture or this project I'm about to, but what is, what is my intuition telling me and what am I thinking? Hmm. And how do they go together and how don't they go together? And so I kind of combine it and it really works for me. You know, I, I, you know, I, I totally get where you're coming from, but I, 
I don't know. The linear mind is always very fascinating to me, and it doesn't seem to inhibit the other for me. So it feels to me as though what you've done, which a lot of us haven't done, is to sort of convert an inclination or a way of being into something purposeful in the world. I know a lot of people that self-define as empathic, and as a result of their, say, unboundaried ways of being, they have a really hard time finding their way into relationality in a healthy sense of the world and finding their path and purpose and sort of foraging path and, and, and energizing themselves enough and to be boundaried enough to manage the world and find their way through it, that thicket. Um, you found a way to do it, which I think is very interesting. And to validate and to offer actual useful practical strategy. I know for me, you know, growing up highly sensitive, and I suppose as I was an empath or something, you know, I then, in order to cope with my very difficult family environment, became quite an armored person. And I had to. This was a, these were necessary coping strategies to find my way through the world, to find a path in the world, to overcome the circumstances of my environment and all those things. And then I reached a place where all I wanted to do, I left law became a lawyer. I was about to become a prominent trial lawyer. And I wrote my first book, Soul Shaping, about this journey. And I then began to surrender to what lay below my armor, because I had a memory from early life of feeling everything and liking the world of feeling. And so I spent a number of years focusing on becoming a more surrendered being, a more vulnerable being, a more feeling-based man, what I referred to later as a tenderling warrior. And what happened was I started to feel like I was now too sensitive to manage the reality of our survivalist world. I see the world as sort of crossing a bridge from survivalist identifications, whatever puts food on the table, whatever armor is required, to a more authentic vibration. Who are you really? Why are you here? And more feeling-based than just surviving by your wits. So your mind is active and useful. But it flows and connects with in a very bridged and healthy way to the world of feeling itself, rather than being sort of split off and dissociated. And so it was interesting. I started to do body-centered psychology with Alexander Lowen, the founder of Bioenergetics, was my therapist for a while. Wow. So I would take the train down to Connecticut to go to this guy's house. This I don't know if you ever encountered him, Judith, but just sort of a wild, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed sort of Mustang. I mean, he was sharp mind energy coming off his body, tantruming into his 90s, 300 kicks every morning. I mean, this, you know, this guy practiced what he preached. And what was interesting was I went to see him and I was focusing a lot of my food sensitivities at the time, you know, getting the sort of interro testing. And, and I said, you know, Al, you know, it's like I, you know, I've gotten myself so sensitive that, you know, if I eat a, a weedy donut, I start to feel tired and agitated. And it, but it was, this was what was interesting. He said to me, he, he was sort of annoyed with me with this. He said, like, oh, he goes, if you get yourself bioenergetically strong, grounded, vital, flowing, energized, you can eat a donut and it doesn't even affect, even affect you. And I thought, well, this is so now this is interesting. So I'm wanting to feel everything. But he's now he's adding another tool for me, which is in order to be able to feel a lot of things, I should also have some kind of energetic boundary that allows me to manage reality and to not respond to every form of stimuli in a way that makes me sort of debilitated, so vulnerable that I can no longer function in the world. Um, 
And so then I started to ask this question that I'm still asking this question. So often, people I know who self-diagnose as empathic, and that's including me at various stages, I started to just interpret what they were saying is that they were just like not well-boundary people and that they were trauma survivors, early stages, later stages, and that they were kind of glorifying empathy as though empathy was somehow this more heightened way of being or vibration. And Lowen's view seemed to be not so much. I mean, it's good to be deeply feeling, but it's good to be vital, have core strength, energy, vibration, all those things. So I'm left with this question. It's, it's a lingering question. At what point is empathy a healthy, being an empathic, a healthy way of being? And at what point is it an unhealthy way of being? Well, great question. Now, being an empath, it takes a lot of discernment because you have to make a lot of choices that aren't conventional. And you have to really tune into your own self and what your needs are. I know so many empaths who have become recluses and they just stay in their house because the world just is too much to bear because they, they haven't learned for whatever reason, you know, how to contain themselves, how to set healthy boundaries, how to protect their energy, how to say no, um, which I do all the time. And in weird situations, you have, you know, people, a lot of empaths are overly polite and they just want to kind of make everyone happy. But you have to say these unusual things that I train my patients and workshop participants to say. You have to practice them. Like I'm not big on um, shaking hands with people. I never have been, except if I know them, of course, you know, that then it's different. But people often want to shake hands with me. And one, one a woman was coming at me. I was walking down the street with my friend and she was coming there. She saw me. She was so excited. I saw her hand reach out, you know, and, you know, I just looked at her and said, I don't really shake hands, but thank you. Oh, okay. Okay. But who says that? You know, but I have to say that otherwise her was going to grab mine. <laughs> And I didn't want it, but this is just one example of being an empath. You have to know what your sensitivities are and not judge them and not feel ashamed of them. There's so much shame that I've worked with so many empaths who have shame about, I'm so sensitive. I should be able to go to parties and I should be able to have five children and not feel like I'm going insane you know, or, or, you know, overwhelmed all the time. I should be able to do this and I can't. What's wrong with me? And that's, you know, no, there's nothing, nothing wrong. I assure everyone who's an empath and you don't want to glorify it either. It's not a glorified state. It's simply a way of being like anything else. You could make it into a beautiful, connected, heart-centered way of being in the world, but it's not glorified. The minute it's glorified, the ego gets involved and then it, it's another ball game. It's not, that's not the same thing. You want to be healthy. You want to be natural. You want to be connected to who you are. You want to have a good time in life. You know, you don't want to be overwhelmed by everything coming at you. you know, which means you have to begin to say, all right, what are the forces in my life that feed me? Who are the people that feed me? And who are the ones that don't? And who are the ones that drain me? Who are, where are the situations I don't like to go to? Like, no, I'm, you know, just textbook empath where I don't like to go to big 
social gatherings because there are too many people buzzing around. It makes me dizzy. Too much to take in. I prefer smaller, you know, one person or two people or maybe three or four. But, you know, that's about it. You know, I, I don't, I get, it's too much. I, I, I like connecting. Like, I like connecting to you. But if there were 10 other people in the room, I would feel that was dispersing my ability to connect to you unless I, you know, I could contain myself and block them out, you know, or keep them at a distance. But that's a different posture energetically. It's just fun for me, one-to-one or just a small group and to connect to people. It's that's for me. And it's not good. It's not bad. It's just me. But as an empath, and I say this for everyone listening, you have to find out what works for you. Not be ashamed of it and be able to stick up for it with a very nice tone of voice. You don't have to be mean or begging or pleading or anything. You just have to say, no, that doesn't work for me. And the same thing with sleeping. You know, I often prefer sleeping alone. Because I'm a big dreamer, I wake up in the morning, every morning, and write down my dreams. So I don't want to have any movement or talking. I want to write down my dreams. It's very important to me. So, you know, my partner and I have worked that out, and we, we do a variety of things. But he's able to hear me. No, and I'm able to speak up. And so, you know, for a number of years in relationship, I was afraid to speak up. So I'd be in situations that were like not comfortable for me in, you know, the effort to make this work. <laughs> but I didn't speak up. But as an empath, I encourage everyone to speak up, to find out what your needs are, journal about it, find honestly what your needs are. And they're not weird. Or maybe they are weird, but they're okay, as long as you're not hurting anybody. Yeah. You know, okay, it's all okay. If you want to go move, you know, live in the, in the sequoias, go do it. That's where it's the place. Don't, don't think about it for 10 years. Be in an environment where they can support you and be with people who can support you and learn how to say no, learn how to set healthy boundaries, learn how to say, this doesn't feel right to me. I'm so sorry. I can't go ahead with this project. I can't say yes to it. Sorry. So sorry. I wanted to, but it didn't work out. You can say it nice. That's the thing. And you're not being a people pleaser. You could say it nice and matter of fact, but it's a no. And it's short. You don't want to get into long explanations. That's the worst possible. Well, you don't have to justify who you are. I think that's your point. And, you know, I think I think you're pioneering something remarkable, which is the self-validating possibilities for somebody who's empathic or highly sensitive for both. And in a survivalist world where anything unique, individuated, idiosyncratic, or not super armored and disconnected from the feeling realm is shamed and shunned. I mean, this is the world that we live in. I know for me that the question that was active for me during this therapeutic or primarily I was experiencing reality as a laboratory for my own expansion and my own excavation the question that kept coming to mind around the low in time was where do where do I end and the other begins? Uh, you know, in the sort of spiritual bypass world, which I didn't know at the time was a bypass world, there was a notion of all oneness that seemed to be congruent with sort of an unhealthy notion of empathy, where I was sort of awash in this boundaryless state or something. That didn't seem to serve me. I didn't like that feeling. I was affected and impacted by everybody in the environment. Um, 
And at the same time, I felt like when I became too sort of privatized and too individual, boundaried as an individual, I felt cut off from relationality, from the nourishment of relationality. And back to my lone wolf warrior way of being that was so sort of familiar, archetypally familiar to me. So I would go to the racetrack because I had a family of racetrackers, the thoroughbred racetrack. And I would, I would lean into this question of where do I end and the other begins? I think you might like this sort of an empathic inquiry. And so I would read the daily racing forum, which is the newspaper before I would go to the track where you study the horses. And I would get clear on my intuition as to which horse would win certain races. And then I would marvel at the fact that I would then go to the racetrack where there were hordes of 15, 20,000 people who would buy in Toronto. And I would be affected by the odds. And I would be affected by what I heard people saying. And I would be affected by the vibration of the field itself. And suddenly, I would move off of my intuitive knowing as to what horse I thought would win. Now, of course, my intuitive knowing wasn't always right, but, but it was more often right than what I then experienced when I allowed myself to be impacted by the people themselves and the odds. So I kept going back to the racetrack, and not because I was particularly interested in betting on horses or could even afford to bet on horses, but because I wanted to reach a place where I could stay clear and centered in my intuition, even at the racetrack. And then eventually I did. I reached a place where I could be at the racetrack, honor my intuitive knowing, bet on the horse that I wanted to bet on without being affected. And then I stopped going to the racetrack. It was an interesting exploration of where I end and where the other begins, which is, I think, just such a complicated question for so many of us. And, and can I say something? Um, what you bring up an important point about unsolicited opinions and other people's opinions versus what you want to do. I just want to say for empaths who are sensitive to other people's opinions, there are millions of them. They'll have opinions about everything you do. And people are very free about offering their opinions, which is very irritating to me because I don't like it. You know, it really annoys me. And so, you know, I when, when I do that with my partner, he's so great. He says, um, did I make a request? You know, if I offer like my opinion, says, did I make a request? No, you didn't make a request. He just wanted so, you to hold space for him, right? Yeah. Did I make a request for an opinion? No. But I, <laughs> He didn't make a request, so why am I giving one? So that makes perfect sense to me. But a lot of people give me opinions about my whole life, who I should be, where I should go. I'm going to be too weird with my parents, too weird if you go this route as a doctor. Don't talk about your intuition. Don't talk about your dreams that come true. Don't talk about your empathy. Don't talk about any of it because that's going to get in the way of you being accepted by the mainstream medical community, period. <laughs> Repeat it over and over again. They're going to think you're weird. They're going to think you're weird. That was my, my mother's big thing. You know, and um, luckily, I went ahead with my path or my path went ahead with me and, you know, <laughs> helped me along. And I didn't um, succumb to her very strong opinions. And I had a, a friend who recently passed on who had unbelievably strong opinions. She was my best friend, a lot older than I was. You know, I, I look at her, per one of her purposes in life was to help me not succumb to other people's opinions. Mm. As she had one of the strongest Eastern European Jew, you know, like a, she <laughs> down with her opinions. 
And so, you know, I was like, oh, you know, and you know, for a long time. And um, but then I finally grew up and I grew stronger and I go, fine, we can agree to disagree. And it didn't go into my soul. So everybody's going to have an opinion about your sensitivities and about your choices. And if you do something that's unpopular, you know, and, and what you were talking about being at the racetrack and hearing the odds, you know, when people want to find their purpose, they think, oh, what are the odds that I can do that? There's so many people applying for that job. What are the odds? I don't really look at the odds because I think that karma and our path is what leads us despite the odds or in spite of the odds. The odds don't. When you're coming from this place, you're just following the centered place and doing what you want to do, independent of what others think you should do, there's going to be a path that leads you to where you need to go. So I think it's a mistake to look at statistics or odds. I mean, you can for your mind and think, okay, well, you know, maybe, but, you know, what are the odds that I would become a doctor? Very low. Both my parents were doctors and I had all those doctors in my family. It's the last thing I wanted to do. I was a you know writer. I was you know hanging out with musicians. I didn't want to be anything that resembled my parents. And then I had a dream that told me, you know, to get an MD to have the credentials to legit help legitimize intuition and they said intuition at that point in medicine. But oh. Okay, in the dream, that sounds fine. But I woke up and I thought, I really don't want to do that. And my mother warned me against it. She says, you're never good in science. How are you going to do it? Just do it. You know, I did it because I was meant to do it. And I was willing to put one foot in front of the other to follow a dream rather than everybody else's opinion. So I hope that inspires everyone to take yourself seriously in terms of what you what, what you want to do in terms of your own sensitivities, in terms of the lifestyle that makes sense to you, so you're not overwhelmed. If you don't like living in the city, go live on, you know, the suburbs or live in a forest. Take action to, you know, life is so short and life goes by really quickly. You know, if you're lucky, uh, you know, live to a ripe old age, you know, not all people do. But it does go by quickly and pretty soon, you know, we're going to be gone. We're not going to be here. So this is your chance. You know, this is your chance to be you and all you empaths out there. We need you. We need to have more empathy. We need to have more connection. And we need to um, come together as a field uh-huh. to add that to the world. Uh-huh. All right. You can do that simply by virtue of your own personal development. If you set a boundary today with somebody who's overstepping your boundary and you say, no, I can't do that, it resonates through all of us. It's like now it makes it easier for all of us to do it because you did it. You see, we're all connected. You know, that's the thing empaths know once they let themselves feel it. Spoken, Spoken like a true empath. (laughs) (laughs) you gave yourself away but we knew already Uh, (laughs) uh, so so now when you're uh, amongst metal mainstream medical people are you able to i understand your mother's practical survivalist wise messaging don't fuck up your career by letting them know about these parts of you 
but now when you're amongst those people, do you feel like, I mean, it's kind of publicly known the kind of work you do anyway, but have you found, did you find it easier to just be all of who you are, even in those particular environments? Um, I kind of go with the person. I supervise residents at UCLA where I did my psychiatric residency and I help them with patient care, you know, with their patients. Like they bring their patients to me and I go over, I listen to it and I add how to bring empathy and intuition into the people. You know, it's wonderful. So it depends what they need. I cater myself. I offer myself in terms of what they need. No, I don't impose my views on people at all, ever. I'm not interested in doing that. Um, but they usually, at this point in, in my life, people usually come to me for this, you know, and they're hungry to learn how to do this. And if they're doctors and, and, and they want to learn how to do this, this is a very special opportunity for me because a lot of the physicians are very linearly trained and they don't have any interest in this. And so they wouldn't come to me. However, I've always had deep respect for everyone. I try to. So I can judge people if they're not into this. If you're an orthopedic surgeon who has no belief in this, the surgeons are really the most, the hardest ones. To get. <laughs> if you can help me with my broken leg, I will, you know, worship you. You know, you're great. You don't have to believe. I, I don't feel like people need to believe as I believe. But as an empath, I mean... So many people reach out to me all the time. And the, since the book came out a few years ago, and, you know, I get so many people reaching out who want, want it, you know, who want it. And if you don't want it, that's fine, too. As long as your life works for you, God bless you. I don't care. It's not my, my job to, to you know, make everyone into an empath. I have no interest in doing that. But I am interested in those who want to come into this particular ability in themselves. I like to guide people how to do that and get comfortable and play with their empathy and play with, you know, going into nature. One of the great gifts, I love nature. You know, now, you know, I just live to be in nature and I look at the trees and the creatures all the time, all the time, even out my window. And I'm always looking at them and connecting to them. But you know, to, to allow yourself to find a companion tree, somebody you really, I mean, some tree you really relate to and sit there, sit next to it with your back against the tree. Maybe you're a lawyer and your linear mind is going, what am I doing? You know, but to sit there, you know, and feel what you feel your back and feel the connection and take a breath and smell the, the beautiful aromas that are floating around in the air and see if you like it. You know, I just tell people, see if you like it. If you don't like it, don't do it, basically. That's my my feeling. So I don't try and convert anybody. One of the things I'm taking from the things that you're saying is is the sort of uh, inextricable linkage or even sameness between being an empath and being, say, an intuitive, for example. And it feels, though, as though in your, your dream story about becoming a doctor is consistent with that, that you figured out a way to trust and to follow your intuition in a world that often encourages us to discard it. And, and now you've done this work in the world and you're pioneering this work in the world and you're validating people that are often so completely undervalidated, their family system or their employment environments or relationships. Do you feel sort of looking back at your life at this stage 
that you have done what Virginia Satir said at the end of her life, according to, I think, Jean Houston, she said this too, and I may be mistaken, but she said, uh, said to him, said, I did what I came to do. Um, do you feel as though you're somebody who has done what you came here to do and that you have no sort of doubts about where your intuition led, no other idea of who you could have become, some other version of Judith Orloff that could have taken form? Do you feel like you, you really have landed exactly where you're supposed to land? Well, actually, I'm still becoming. Hmm. As Judith Orloff hasn't ended her growth. Mm-hmm. You know, she is, I am still becoming every minute, every until the end. I'm going to hopefully be becoming until I leave here. I don't want to stop becoming. You know, that's mm-hmm. a great gift to wake up and go, oh, how am I going to grow today? Mm-hmm. So, nice. It doesn't matter how old you are, because a lot of people get hooked on age and they think, oh, I should have done this by 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever. And my feeling is whenever you do it, if this is right for you, it's a beautiful thing. I've had a a woman come to me in her 90s who just discovered she was an empath. You know, she says, where have you been all my life? Where has this been all my life? I don't know. But here it is. It doesn't matter when you do it. And these arbitrary timelines for us to do things are just, I mean, they never made sense. You're supposed to get married. Well, this has changed a bit, you know, when you're in your 20s and you're supposed to have children and you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to do that. You know, it is by a certain age. You're supposed to get over your mother issues by, I don't know what age it is, maybe 40. You never get over, you know, not fully. There's always more, you know, there's always, and that's what's so great. You grow and you, you, you get more sense of yourself and you get a real mm, happiness within and the growth that you've, you've changed and the people that you've helped over the many years. It's incredibly gratifying. The soul has the timeline on its own. I think that's what you're saying. And, and in the pragmatic world, it, it makes sense that it's organized, that you define yourself earlier from survivalist perspective and get organized and get a solid job, get a union job or all those things. But those of us who are more interested in finding out who we really are this lifetime in a world that doesn't encourage it, it makes sense. It would take longer because you have to sift through all that conditioning and learn to trust something called your intuition that's disparaged everywhere you look in the culture itself. And I knew a lot of people that were so clear when I was an undergrad about who they were and what they were going to do. And I, I tell you, almost every one of them I encountered in the middle of their lives and things had just fallen apart because they had never really asked the question of who they were from a non-pragmatic perspective. And the people that I know who have, I'm not talking about the people who are avoiding the question altogether, because that's a whole other story, perpetual seeking rather than finding. But those who took the journey seriously seem to get more and more gratified and more and more peace with path as they get older. Um, And you're absolutely right. They see every day as a sort of self-creational opportunity to continue to evolve into the next version of themselves. I wanted to... uh, spend a little more time in your book, but I wanted to read one quote from my book, Articulations, and ask you just your impressions of this quote. It's a popular quote that relates to this question of empathy. So it's from page 81 of of, uh, Articulations. Empathy is an interesting word, often mistaken for something quite different. Unhealthy boundaries, not knowing where we end and the other begins. I think of how often I remain 
connected to hurtful people and others to me when I was hurtful because I imagined myself empathic. And maybe I was, but that didn't mean I had to endure their madness. Our empathic capacity can be as misdirected as any other ability. Just because you can feel where someone is coming from doesn't mean that you have to put your emotional health at risk. When we allow empathy to keep us invested in that which brings us suffering, when we confuse it with a boundaryless way of being, it morphs into misplaced faith and self-sabotage. It becomes compassion run amok. It turns a gift freely given into a gift freely abused. Better to not turn your compassionate nature against yourself, empathize with humanity, but shield yourself from harm. Close quote. Any thoughts? Empathize with humanity, but shield yourself from harm. I mean, I think in many ways that's what your book is saying. Am I right? Absolutely. I mean, that's so full of wisdom. It's so full of wisdom that you know, empathy isn't inherently a positive thing for people unless they make certain decisions about the boundary setting and about you're not just one big blob connecting to everybody. You, you can't do that. You have to have boundaries. You have to have a very distinct energy that is your own. You have to make choices. You don't want to, if you're tuning into the world, and you're sending the world love and healing, and you're sending it out, it will go everywhere. You know, it'll go everywhere, but you're sending something out. You're not feeling, this is what empaths do. They feel the suffering of people in each country. How can I bear all the suffering that's around the world? How can I bear it? Well, you, you don't. It's not your job to take it on. It's their job. The person who is suffering, it is their job to deal with it. You know, and, and that's kind of a hard line, but you don't want to tune into the world and go into the black hole of human suffering. It goes <laughs> nowhere. It'll take you nowhere but down. It's just not a really wise thing to do. And plus, you know, I tell people this respectfully. It's really none of your business to get into other people's suffering. You can send them, you know, love and you could send them prayers and that does tremendous amount from my, I'm a big believer in prayer. But you don't want to take on the suffering in your own body, just as with a family member. It's natural. A family member is going through something really hard. Let's say they have a major depression. Let's say they have a, a health challenge that's scary. You know, you want to take it on. The empath wants to take it on, but you try not to because this is theirs and it doesn't help either of you, you know, to do that. And it certainly doesn't help the world for you to take on their suffering. It doesn't help them. And if you want to be of service to the world, you can send out healing. That you can do, but it does not help them. For you to, to try and take it on, you feel it. And there's a compulsion among empaths to take on suffering when they feel it. They just do it automatically. It's something that's a very important dynamic to keep an eye on in yourself because it, it, it links up with codependency and not feeling it's your job to fix another person, which I feel very strongly. It's not, you can be of service, you can be a guide, you can hold the energy for another person, you can, you know, offer them whatever you can offer them, but you cannot do it for them and you can't change. You know, the, the person who, who is suffering in Ukraine right now, but you can send them love and feel them, they're going to get it. 
You know, you have to have a belief in the energy travels and this energy of the heart, which is the most important thing that for empaths to get in touch with. It's the healing energy. So when I meditate, meditation is an important tool for empaths. I tune into my heart. And it's an energy that I feel in my body that travels through my body and then out into the world. All right. It's only reassuring and warm and you're, you're going to love it. It's just the, it's the, the center of the healing energy. And so empaths need to learn how, and a lot of them don't, to connect to the heart so you can begin to, if you're feeling panicked, if you're feeling sensory overload, which many empaths feel, if you're feeling, you know, like your whole life is falling apart, put your hand over your heart. Take a breath. Hold on to yourself through the heart and begin all over again, you know, to see yourself. You can always begin all over again when things just (laughs) go away out of control. You know, it happens, but you just stop. Okay, no, start from the beginning and just go to the heart. But you learn these things. It's a very strenuous thing. You know, life is intense. There are intense energies out there. People carry intense energies, right? So you don't want to absorb them. You, When I go to the market, the last thing I want to do is even tune into the people around. I don't have the slightest interest in doing that because it will just overwhelm me. And if I stay it open to everyone in the market as an empath, everyone is suffering. I could guarantee you that. Some degree or another, there's suffering there. And empaths zero in on that suffering. Oh, my God, how can I be in the world? Well, you know, this is the earth plane, and we're learning how to deal with our own challenges here. You know, and and it's patience. No, but it's not your, yes, expect everyone to have suffering. Don't be surprised by it. People are surprised by it. And so they go into the market and they open up their intuition. Oh, this one's suffering. Oh, this one's really suffering. Sure. That's just like, and there are also a lot of other things in addition to their suffering. But if you just empaths tune into the suffering and go, oh my God, how can I stand it? I can't do anything to change it. No, no, you can't. But what you can do is you can focus on yourself and you could focus on those that come to you who seek your advice or seek your counsel or just life transpires where events happen and you're asked to be of service in situations to others that you never even thought of. Like at the gym, I was going through a phase where people were <laughs> losing consciousness at the gym when they were working, they'd fall. Down. And so I'd go over. I knew what was strange. This was a while back. A couple of them, they were having problems at the gym. And so I would go very you know, no one would catch me. I would just put my hands on the people and just begin to send them energy. It looked like I would, didn't, I don't know what it looked like because there was so much flurry. They thought the person would die. And I put my hands on them and I did what I could because it was right in front of me. So sometimes things are in front of you and you have to make a choice. Is this mine to do? That's a question I ask a lot because sometimes it's not to do, even though it happens in front of you. So there are all these nuances. Of, am I drawn to do this? One of the intuitions that empaths need to really honor is, am I drawn to this person? Am I drawn to do this? Is this mine? And I got with that one example, yes, it is mine. And I'm right here with it and right on the spot, you know, because I'm ready at any moment. You know, I really Judith, am. Judith on the spot. Yeah. 
No, I'm ready. I'm ready because I know life happens that way. You know, and I'm ready to ask my the question, is it for me to do or do I just kind of stand back and hold the energy from afar? But empaths sometimes feel they need to do everything. They have to get in there. They have to, you know, over overdo. And you, you really don't. You have to do what is yours. And so you tune in and you have to know that feeling of what is yours. And that feeling is a yes, I feel drawn to do this. And so get used to that. I feel drawn to this person, you know, in a healthy way. Practicing the art of uh, selective attachment or selective involvement or something, it seems to me is really, really important to the empaths. Yes, you can't have a bunch of narcissists around you all the time. I mean, sometimes you can't avoid it because they're family members. But you, if, if you do, if that's you, because sometimes the narcissist goes to the empath and vice versa, you have to lower your expectations and realize these people have empathy deficient disorder. They They can't give you what you need. Basically, they can make a lot of promises. They can turn on the charisma. So you're wowed and, oh, my God, I feel this incredible connection to this person. But they can't give you what you need. And so it's it's crazy all the things that they do. And you think, oh, I met my soulmate. But no, 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 it's not your soulmate. It's it's somebody who's channeling a lot of charisma your way. And you're getting blown away with the heart energy. But no, no, it's not the soulmate. The soulmates have empathy. So it's, it's so interesting. There's so many different reviews we can go down in terms of what empaths experience, you know, and rich. It's a rich experience. And, you know, I just want to tell everybody that I wouldn't want to be any other way. I love this whole exercise. I love the grounding of myself. I love it. Well, I don't love it when I'm thrown off, but I love when I bring myself back together again. It just happens. You don't ever reach the pinnacle. You know, there's no pinnacle to reach. It's just coming and going of all things, basically, and embracing your path as an empath. You know, just not fighting it. If you can, you don't want to fight it. That will cause problems if you fight it. It can cause a lot of anxiety or depression or physical symptoms if you if you fight it, if, you, if you're not able to at least give it a chance. Because it's a powerful thing, you know, the sensitivity. So you want to learn to work with it, not fight it. Beautifully said. Uh, Looking forward, um, in terms of your creative output, what's next? Well, I have another book coming out next year. With? It's it's called The Genius of Empathy. Mm, And who's publishing that? It sounds true. Got it. And... Have you started writing already? It's done. I mean, oh, it's, not, it's, done. Not, it's not done, but it's like it's in the editorial process now. So it's almost done. I'm ready for it to be done. I bet. And how do you feel about the book? Oh, my God. Each book is so different to write. This one has been like riding the ox backwards, you know, and starting to stay balanced because there's so many. Um, it's a very tender topic. And um, you can be very facile about empathy. People can, and I don't want to do that. So um, I think I've, I've got it. I think, I think it's going to touch people in terms of um, 
what it is, not just for empaths, but for everybody, you know, how, how to find it as a healing, healing force, healing. Force. Mm. I love the I love the title, the genius of empathy. Okay. That's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. Any last thoughts? Um, I just want to say I honor your work and I'm really grateful Thank to you. be on this podcast with you. As I know, I just reached out to you and thanks because, you know, on my, I have a empath support group on Facebook and they're always posting your quotes and I love your quotes. I love reading them. So I thought, why not reach out to him, you know, you you know, communion with him. And, you know, that's another thing you learn to do is uh, you reach out. If you have an instinct and there's a so-called stranger out there, you reach out. If you feel an instinct to reach out to them and, fear rejection so they sometimes don't do it but as an empath it's a fun thing to do you know it's really fun and so i encourage you to reach out to those you feel a connection with like i did with you so i want to thank you for your work uh thank you for supporting my empath survival guide i'm really grateful for that and i knew our conversation would be totally fun absolutely i'm glad you you reached out from empath to empath thank you judith you're welcome. The dark is all around me, but I'm so glad it found me. Over the moon and through stars